0: everybody. Hi. Welcome to Saints and Witches. That's Liz over there. And that is Sarah. I'm a Catholic. I'm a witch. And today we are back to tell you more stories about Saints and Witches. That's our whole share st- <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Goodbye. Um, We are going back to Spain today. Well, at least
1: I am. I'm kind of in Great Britain, but... It's okay. not, it wasn't Great Britain at the time, so. It doesn't count. No, those <laughs> damn Romans, <laughs> mm. They just slapped their their sticker on everything, so. True. Yeah, I
0: am in Spain and a little bit of Italy and a little bit of Jerusalem, so I am everywhere all at once. We're just going to be chilling out in the past. Cool. Yep. Love it. Do. Uh-huh love to see it <laughs> um, so I've been doing this thing where every Sunday I go to the little farmers market that we have in the neighborhood and it's not a huge deal it's like maybe 10 little booths like mm-hmm. on a on a good Sunday and um, every week in uh, in the name of self-care, I buy myself another plant that I will then (laughs) murder murder (laughs) within the week.
1: You're just draining its life force. Self-care.
0: Yep. So this week is a basil plant that will be deceased (laughs) the, the next time we speak. Sarah is not a green witch. I'm not. And it's like one of my downfalls, I think. Like it makes me sad that I'm not
1: yeah, I'm definitely not either. I get a plant and then I hyperfixate on it for like a couple of weeks. and then I hyperfixate on something else and forget it exists.
0: Yeah. I in turn over water and then underwater and then <laughs> over water again. <laughs> it's really great, really great cycle. But I did see on TikTok that apparently overwatering refers to the duration between the times that you give the plant any kind of water and not the amount of water you give it at each watering.
1: Yeah, cuz it should drip out the bottom just why pots have holes in the bottoms. Right. Cause that's and, what I used to do with, um, when I worked at the flower shop, we would take some of them outside and we would just drench them until it leaked out the bottom. And then we'd bring them back inside when they were done dripping.
0: Yeah. So my problem is that I, because I'm like an anxious person, I'm like, Oh, do you need anything? Do you, do you want it did, did you want that? And they're like, no, like, leave me the fuck alone.
1: So I need to respect their boundaries. I think a little more. You need to find one of those plants that is, like, indestructible. Well, I do
0: have a snake plant that I've kept alive. I've kept that alive for, like, six months now.
1: I'm proud of you.
0: Thank you. (laughs) That feels condescending. I didn't check my pronunciations because I refuse to do extra work. <laughs> mood. Um, I refuse to check my work. I refuse to apologize. <laughs> I just simply categorically refuse this week. I don't know why. Like I had a fine week. It wasn't extra stressful or anything. Sometimes you just, you're not in the mood. It's yeah. like, I, I'll wing it. Yeah, that's what I'm doing today. And I have such, like, arrogance about, like, the Spanish language. Like, I think I know it. (laughs) I haven't spoken any Spanish since, like, I was 18 years old. So this will be fun. Um, Okay, so I'm heading back to the Counter-Reformation today. If anyone listened to our episode, if anyone at all in the world listened to episode 7... About Saint Teresa of Avila, this is the exact same time period. So, this is the chill, fun time known as the Spanish Inquisition. Um, Yeah, yay. But that's just like one of many gigantic events that's going on in Europe. Um, We also have the Age of Exploration, the Renaissance, the Counter Reformation, the Wars of Religion. And in the midst of all this, what emerges is the Society of Jesus or the Jesuit Order. So today we're going to talk about those crazy Jesuits and their main founder, St. Ignatius of Loyola or St. Ignatius Loyola. Um, He's an intense guy. (laughs) He has no chill. (laughs) Um, My main sources were a few primary sources, including his autobiography, and his letters and sections of his spiritual journal and spiritual exercises, and then a bunch of different secondary sources, some of them Jesuit and some secular. Okay, Ignatius was born Inigo Lopez de Oñaz y Loyola. Lopez de Oñaz is his paternal surname, and Loyola refers to Loyola Castle or Casa Loyola, where he was born. In the village of Aspeitia, just to guess, in Basque country, so that's northern Spain. Um, I think that's where your Spanish witch trial took place—the
1: Basque witch trials. Yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no fucking shit. Um, <laughs> those, those are definitely in Germany. The Basque witch trials, you complete dumbass. Yes. <laughs> Um, I know you I know you didn't mean it like that, but it was funny how
1: it sounded. <laughs> that was me recalling the name and saying it at the same time. So mm-hmm.
0: yeah, so it's the northern part of Spain. It's part of Spain's border with France. Um, the area itself has like a fascinating history. Um, up to the ninth century, it was known as Basconia. and it was like a tug of war between the Franks, um, who I obviously love and the Iberian Visigoths. And then in the late Middle Ages, the prominent families of the area had a series of these like horrible blood feuds that escalated into a civil war, which carried on until Ferdinand and Isabella consolidated power and unified Spain. So it's a very bloody area with a lot of like crazy history. So Inigo was born in 1490 or 1491, we're not sure. His parents were Don Beltran and Doña Marina, and they were part of the minor nobility. He was the youngest of 13 children. His family was like an old Catholic family, but their practical morals uh, were not great. Um, His father had children by several different women His grandfather actually was such a dick (laughs) that the Spanish crown ordered the top two floors of Loyola Castle to be destroyed in punishment for his crimes. (laughs) off the top of his house right like a cake just cut off the the top (laughs) two layers
1: that's a very specific punishment
0: it is and the funniest part to me is that I couldn't find out what the crimes were (laughs) (laughs) he's such a bad person we want to make his house shorter (laughs) right like how does that correspond to the types of crimes he committed It's just like funny (laughs) to think about. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah, Abuelo had some stories, I bet. Um, So for a little bit of current events, uh, this is during the Italian Wars, or um, also known as the Habsburg-Valois Wars, which were fought over control of the Italian peninsula. Because at this time, it's not like the country of Italy. It's like all these provinces. Um, Inigo's eldest brother, Juan Perez, died fighting in that war. And another one of his brothers went on Christopher Columbus's second mission to the Americas. <laughs> Shame. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, honestly. Um, so this family is kind of all over the place. And so many big things are happening in history that my brain can't really wrap around it. So, like, for more context... Which, honestly, this just is upsetting. In this biography I read, it says, When Inigo de Loyola came into the world in 1491, Erasmus was 25, Machiavelli 22, Copernicus 18, Michelangelo 16, Thomas More 11, and Luther had just turned (laughs) 7. It's like, how are all these people alive on the same continent at the same time? I have no idea. Because to me, they're so distinct in my brain and they're in different time periods
1: in my brain, but they're really not. It's weirder to me when they meet each other. It's like I didn't realize that you guys existed at the same time, let alone knew one another.
0: Yeah, so true.
1: Yeah. So that's what's going on.
0: Okay. Um, It's not exactly clear when Inigo started going by the name of Ignatius. Um, He did keep a diary, but there wasn't like an entry or whatever where he was like, dear diary, (laughs) I'm rebranding myself. It's been suggested that he wasn't actively trying to change his name, like make a big change and reinvent himself or whatever by calling himself like Ignatius. Um, He was just ensuring that his name would be understood in different languages by calling himself the Latin variant of the name. Um, So at some point he becomes Ignatius and I'll just call him that from now on. Ignatius's mother died shortly after his birth and he was put in the care of the local blacksmith's wife because there was no woman of the house. And obviously his dad's like going around fucking all these other women, apparently like it's not a good place to raise an infant. Uh, (laughs) They're getting layers shaved off the house (laughs) every (laughs) week or so like it's bad news. Um, until 1498, when Ignatius's second eldest brother, Martin brought his wife to live at the house. So then Ignatius could return home. And she walks in. She's like, what the
1: fuck did I marry into? <laughs> There's tarps everywhere. <laughs> tarps everywhere.
0: Super drafty. All these buckets on the floor. But like the furniture is really nice. Somehow so. she gets this kid that she's <laughs> kind of in charge of. Mm hmm super gross not not a good time for her Mm -mm. um and of course she doesn't get a name because who cares exactly um around this age his father decided that ignatius was going to have a future in the clergy so he had him tonsured your favorite thing but ignatius said fuck you dad I don't know if he really said that, but um, instead of entering the clergy or becoming like an acolyte or whatever, he became a page in the service of the treasurer of the kingdom of Castile. This was like a family, I almost said family relative. It was a relative um, named Juan Velázquez de Cuellar or Don Velázquez. Ignatius loved the idea of knighthood, like chivalry, romance, dueling. He, like a typical boy of the time, he and modern times too. Um, he was obsessed with tales of knights, including the Knights of the Round Table, but also a French epic poem called *The Song of Roland*, which is the oldest surviving French major work of literature major work of French literature. So of course I had to look it up because Ignatius based his entire adolescent life around these stories. They weren't just stories to him. Um, This is like what he wanted to be. So in the poem, the hero Roland is the nephew of Charlemagne and his army is fighting the Moors in Spain and Roland ends up dying a martyr's death. Um, It's during a battle, the army is far from home, they're overwhelmed, and Roland heroically calls for help by blowing his horn until his temples burst and he dies. Um, So the song has it all, there's romance, there's drama, the angels like take his body to paradise, it's a lot. Um, So this is the kind of stuff that Ignatius like devours as a kid. Um, So it's no surprise that he joined the army at the age of 17. And I always think it's funny when like future saints act like regular people when they're children. So according to Wikipedia, and the source is the biography that I read. Um, While he was in the army, Ignatius was, quote, a fancy dresser, an expert dancer, a womanizer, sensitive to insult, and a rough, punkish swordsman who used his privileged status to escape prosecution for violent crimes committed with his priest brother at Carnival (laughs) time. So I was like, what? Like, what violent crimes? And, like, his priest brother was, like, going around beating people up? That just feels like a story I wish I had written and want to write. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Just like this young dumbass and his priest brother, who's also a dumbass. Getting into a bunch of shenanigans. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) um so I looked it up like I was trying to figure out what these crimes could have been but I could only find like tertiary sources who literally repeated that exact sentence word for word um so that's all all I can tell you about that he was like a privileged little punk basically in the year 1509 when he was 18 years old he joined the service of a duke and he must have been a decent soldier because he earned the title servant of the court um, he fought in the army for about 12 years in many battles, and again, this is part of like the wide-ranging umbrella of the Italian wars. These particular battles were the Spanish army attempting to gain control of the French-controlled province of Nevada. In May of 1521, Ignatius was fighting in the Battle of Pamplona, and the opposing army stormed the fortress— he was in, and during the battle, a cannonball ricocheted off of a wall and shattered his right leg. Um, he was taken back to the family home and underwent lots of surgeries on his leg, which, with no anesthesia... And just medieval, like, surgery in and of itself. Right. What did they even use? Like, a pocket knife that they sharpened on their boot? Like It hadn't been clean in two years. It's, like, fucking disgusting. The fact that he didn't
1: die. What were they even gonna fix anyway? It's not like they had like <laughs> rods and stuff that they could like screw right. into his legs. Right. It's like, so, oh, we just
0: kind of squished it all together and wrapped it up. That's exactly what they did. So they rebroke the leg in a bunch of different places and then smushed it back together. That's yeah, exactly work. what they did. <laughs> that sounds like <laughs> me. What I would have done. <laughs> no medical license do you ever think about how we would be like amazing doctors if we were sent back in time <laughs> like we would, we would be geniuses we would revolutionize medicine if we were sent back in time that is such but a but we're joke. women
1: so they'd kill us that's
0: true that's very true unless we were like super religious that's true <laughs> if we could fool them <laughs> that much then maybe we wouldn't be burned at the stake. So, yeah, his bones were set and rebroken, set again. And these surgeries left him with a permanent limp because the shattered leg was like an inch shorter than his <laughs> left leg because they smushed it around a bunch. <laughs> 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 like Plato. <laughs> Just force <laughs> things back in. Like, they had two puzzle pieces that didn't fit together, but they forced them to fit together.
1: Imagine leaning on your other foot, and you, like, topple over <laughs> an inch shorter.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's not good. So, eventually, no. he did wear, like, like, later, later on, like, after... Mm, I don't want to spoil anything. Not that it's a surprise or anything, but, like, he ended up wearing like a uh, a bigger heel on his right foot, which is super dorky. Yeah, so he had a permanent limp, and this was obviously the end of his military career. Um, and he was only 30 years old, so it's kind of like existential crisis time. Um, like, what the hell do I do with my life now? Um, so he's recovering, and he's got a lot of downtime, so he wants to read his favorite chivalric romances but there aren't any in the castle so instead he reads books about like jesus's life and he's like oh my god what a drag like it's like when you're on a plane and you can only read like the sky mall catalog like he's bored at, at your grandparents house and they don't get the
1: good channels so
0: <laughs> exactly you only have like pbs you
1: like
0: you're like Ooh. it's all
1: like touched
0: by an angel and stuff <laughs> my god, I used to, you just unlocked a memory. I used to watch that show, like, not to make a pun, but religiously. (laughs) Uh, I had to watch it every time I stayed with my great-grandparents. It was like that or the news. Touched by an angel, and what was the one where the girl was like, like, she met God a bunch of places. The theme song was like, what if God was one of us? Do you remember? Oh, Oh, what was it called? What was it called? I'll think of it. But yeah. Google that at the break. Yes, I will. Um, So he's stuck with these books about Jesus and like the saints. And eventually he comes to like start enjoying them. And the book that he enjoyed the most was a, bu- was a book called De Vida Christi, which is like a 14th century book about Jesus's life and passion. And the book suggests this sort of like meditation called simple contemplation, which is basically like, imagine yourself present at the events you're reading about. Um, imagine what that experience would be like. So like picture yourself at the crucifixion. Like, what would you see? What would you hear?
1: what would Jesus's voice sound like? Um That's so strange to me coming from a modern fiction perspective where that's literally what we're supposed to do. That's the default.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. It's very modern sounding, but I think it's so interesting that like, it's not modern at all. Like it's existed How for did this people long. read back then? What was fiction to them? Is that why
1: they acted well, everything out?
0: Well, I'm an expert because I took one class about this. So <laughs> let me tell you. No, I took um, a class. It was my freshman year at SIU. I took a class about the modern novel and like the very first novels. And we tend to think that it was like probably French or like like English, like it came from Great Britain in the 1600s. But actually, the thesis of the class was that novels had existed before then And they mainly came from Spanish-speaking countries. And so, like, you see, like, picaresque novels where, like, they're not technically considered novels because the main character doesn't undergo any sort of change. But they count because, like, spoiler alert, it's racist. Anyway... Uh <laughs> What am I talking about? So yeah, so this is modern in like this modern. This is common in modern Catholic meditations too. So like I remember in second grade in religious ed, we would do the stations of the cross, but we would go around the school and we would like take turns reading these diary entries that were supposed to be written from Mary's point of view, witnessing the crucifixion. So this tradition is very old, is what I'm saying. So all this stuff is brand new to Ignatius. Um, Obviously, he has the background information, but this is the first time that he's like dedicated time to learning about Catholicism. And so this is from the section of the autobiography about this time. And he dictated his autobiography, which is why it's written in third person. Like he's not a a total fucking weirdo. He was just talking. Um, (laughs) I like to think he dictated it in third person. (laughs) (laughs) It's possible. I guess that's a possibility that I didn't want to consider.
1: (laughs) I would like to have been a fly on the wall in that room.
0: (laughs) And the writer's like, wait. I'm confused. Who are you talking about? <laughs> I don't get it. Um, okay. Quote He pictured to himself. Oh my god, my eye just started twitching uncontrollably. It's the Holy Spirit. No. He pictured to himself what he should do in honor of an illustrious lady, how he should journey to the city where she was, in what words he would address her, and what bright and pleasant sayings he would make use of, what manner of warlike exploits he should perform to please her. He was so carried away by this thought that he did not even perceive how far beyond his power it was to do what he proposed, for she was a lady exceedingly illustrious and of the highest nobility." In the meantime, the divine mercy was at work substituting for these thoughts others suggested by his recent readings. While perusing the life of our Lord and the saints, he began to reflect, saying to himself, what if I should do what St. Francis did? What if I should act like St. Dominic? He pondered over these things in his mind and kept continually proposing to himself serious and difficult things. He seemed to feel a certain readiness for doing them with no other reason except... This thought, St. Dominic did this, I too will do it. St. Francis did this, therefore I will do it. These heroic resolutions remained for a time, and then other vain and worldly thoughts followed. This succession of thoughts occupied him for a long while, those about God alternating with those about the world. But in these thoughts, there was this difference. When he thought of worldly things, it gave him great pleasure, but afterwards he found himself dry and sad. But when he thought of journeying to Jerusalem and of living only on herbs and practicing austerities, he found pleasure not only while thinking of them, but also when he had ceased. So the thought that keeps him going throughout his (laughs) horrible recovery is the idea that as soon as he's well enough, he's going to go on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And this is when he started some pretty intense ascetic practices, including fasting and self-mutilation, because it's um, just, just what the doctor ordered. What did he do, just whack himself <laughs> in his injured leg? <laughs> That'll do. <laughs> it didn't give specific information about, like, it's get. it said that he scourged himself, which... I guess could be anywhere on your body, but like most commonly I would think it would be like whipping yourself with on like a back. flail on the back. Yeah. Um, so that's what I pictured, but I guess we don't know. <laughs> so that's what doctors recommend during your recovery is just injuring yourself even more. In and his- not eating. <laughs> and not eating. Exactly. Not drinking water, nothing. Yeah. <laughs> In his mind, this was preparation for the journey to the Holy Land by trying to, like, physically atone for his previous sins. It's at this time that he has a vision of the Virgin Mary, which, like, fills him with peace, and he takes it as a sign that he's doing the right thing. Um, the autobiography says that quote, his brother and all in the house recognized from what appeared externally, how great a change had taken place in his soul. He continued his reading meanwhile, and kept the holy resolution he had made at home. His conversation was wholly devoted to divine things and helped much to the spiritual advancement of others. Again, it sounds like third person, but he's talking about himself. So like grain of salt. Like they, they probably just ignored him. (laughs) It's their youngest brother. Like, come on, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: you know how you feel about your youngest sibling.
1: (laughs) I can't remember his name.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Sometimes I forget she exists.
1: It's an 11 year difference out of sight, out of mind. Exactly. So
0: he did set off on his pilgrimage as soon as he was able to, He headed through Nevada, stopping at several shrines of the Virgin Mary along the way, then toward, I believe, St. Mary's Abbey in Montserrat. It's a Benedictine abbey that was founded in in the 11th century and still functions today, which is pretty rare for like a Benedictine abbey. Um, But about 70 monks live there. And this is not a short journey Um, from the family home to this abbey. It's about 500 kilometers So he's limping the whole way (laughs) (laughs) on his mushy leg. Um, On his way to the Abbey, he has a run in with a Moore whom he had an argument with. Again, the Moore Moore would not be like the politically correct term for who this person was, um, but it's what they say in the autobiography. And I don't really have another good name for him besides like the man. Um, But so this more says something like, the Virgin Mary can't possibly be a virgin, like she must have fucked somebody. And even if she didn't, like she can't technically be a virgin if she's gone through childbirth, like that's just not physically how it works. So she's not a virgin. And Ignatius was so angry and so disgusted that he could barely speak to this man. And he's like, Lord, bear me strength. Like, calm me down and they separate and the guy had told him where he was traveling to it was a village that was like coming up on the road so ignatius was like i know where he's staying he was talking shit about the virgin mary like how can i a chivalrous knight because that's how he thinks of himself how can i not defend her honor and go and murder this man (laughs) but then he's like wait what would Jesus do? <laughs> and he doesn't know. He's like, I really I cannot be certain what the right thing is to do,
1: <laughs> which is like to murder or not
0: to murder. It's such a hard choice. <laughs> what would Jesus do? Would he murder? I think he just might. Um so he's like, I don't know what to do. So he's riding on a donkey and he's like The turnoff for the village is coming up. So he's like, okay, I leave it in the donkey's hands. (laughs) (laughs) Hoops. Like, whatever is the will of God, the donkey will either stay on this path and or it'll go down the road to the village. And the donkey stays on the path, so he does not go murder him. The
1: donkey's like, this is a lot of goddamn pressure. I don't want to be an accomplice to murder. They could charge me for this.
0: The donkey's like, I can't go back to jail. I refuse to go back to jail. I'm not doing it again. I will not go back. He's like, "I've I've been such a good donkey since my release. Um, So anyway, that was a weird digression. Ignatius (laughs) arrives at the Abbey, finally, and he befriends a priest who becomes his confessor for the time that he's there. I think it's about a year, maybe longer. It wasn't really clear because it mentions seasons and it's like summer, winter, winter and i'm like wait <laughs> go back um so i think less than two years but more than one year i don't know anyway when he gets there he spends three entire days making an examination of conscience so it takes that long for him to write out and confess every single one of his sins oh, i just fucked up i realized i fucked up
1: anyway okay, i wasn't paying attention <laughs>
0: So the place that he stays for a year, he hasn't gotten there yet. There are two different abbeys and it confuses me. The first one, he just stays for three days. He makes a giant list of his sins and he confesses them. And then he leaves his horse and his weapons at the abbey. He gives his fancy clothes to a beggar. And he puts on a, a pilgrim's cloak, and then he leaves in the middle of the night for Barcelona. Or as they say in Barcelona, Barcelona.
1: <laughs> I like the thought of his long list of sins, though, and his confessor, just looking at him and being like, what the fuck have you been up to? Is this even legal?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Made a donkey an accomplice to murder? Like, <laughs> what are you even talking about? Everything from his army days is its own sheet of paper. (laughs) Right. (laughs) He's like, your brother is a priest? Like, it's super bad. Um, I completely lost my spot. Barcelona. Yeah, Barcelona. (laughs) On, (laughs) On the way to Barcelona, he is overtaken by a man on horseback from the abbey who asks him if he gave fancy clothes to a beggar. He's like, this this beggar is saying that you gave your clothes away to him. Did you do that? And he's like, "Yeah." And the guy's like, "Oh, that's awkward." We like, "We the-
1: we inherently
0: don't trust homeless people." Yeah, <laughs> So
1: he's our like, bad.
0: We just assumed that you stole that he stole from you, so we did beat him within an inch of his life. <laughs> <laughs> we did do that. Our bad. Yikes. It was misunderstanding. <laughs> Okay, it's totally fine. No, it's fine. Everything's fine. I thought about like omitting that detail because it's not super important. But then I was like, I feel like he included that for a reason. And I think it's kind of telling of his naivete at the time and the naivete of like rich people in general, like what rich people's ideas are of helping the poor and I'm like just
1: going to go give them a bunch of riches
0: and no one will ever question where they got them. Right, exactly. And how like sometimes they do way more harm than good because they don't even have like, they don't have a basic understanding of how the world works. No. It's like us. <laughs> in America, sending like all our old t-shirts to like Africa. It's like, what are you even doing? Like you have no concept. Anyway, I thought it was kind of funny, sad, but funny, but sad. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So for a while, he stays in the nearby village of Manresa. And this is the place where he stays for like over a year. Um, While he's there, he lives on the food and money that he begs for in the streets Um, He fasts a lot. He doesn't eat meat or drink wine. He neglects his appearance because he had paid so much attention to it in the past. He was, like, obsessed with himself, so he just, like, doesn't cut his hair, doesn't cut his toenails, whatever. Okay, back to the autobiography. Quote, it was while he was living at the hospital in Manresa that the following strange event took place. Very frequently on a clear moonlit night there appeared in the courtyard before him an indistinct shape which he could not see clearly enough to tell what it was, yet it appeared so symmetrical and beautiful that his soul was filled with pleasure and joy as he gazed at it. It had something of the form of a serpent with glittering eyes, and yet they were not eyes. He felt an indescribable joy steal over him at the sight of this object. The oftener he saw it—is oftener a word? I don't think so—the oftener he saw it, the greater was the consolation he derived from it, and when the vision left him, his soul was filled with sorrow and sadness. Up to this period, he had remained in a constant state of tranquility and consolation, without any interior knowledge of the trials that beset the spiritual life. But during the time that the vision lasted, sometimes for days or a little previous to that time, his soul was violently agitated by a thought that brought him no little uneasiness. There flashed upon his mind the idea of the difficulty that attended the kind of life he had begun, and he felt as if he heard someone whispering to him, how can you keep up for 70 years of your life these practices which you have begun? Knowing that this thought was the temptation of the evil one, he expelled it by this answer, can you, wretched one, promise me one hour of life? In this manner, he overcame the temptation and his soul was restored to peace." So a huge thing with Ignatius is this sense of these extremes where he either has like total ecstasy or like he's completely lost and everything is chaos and despair, Um, which is funny because in his book, Spiritual Exercises, he advocates for a constant balance and inner peace and equilibrium. Um, so it's like he's advocating for something that he himself can't achieve, uh, which I think is just an interesting concept. Um, so one of his major anxieties is that even though he spent three whole days making that gigantic shocking confession, um, he worries that he left some stuff out. So he agonizes over that for a really long time to the point where his confessor, at the Dominican monastery where he's staying says to him like I command you to no longer confess your past sins that you already confessed like I command you to please shut the fuck up about them leave
1: me the fuck alone yeah.
0: which reminded me of Saint Monica where she's like please help my son be a Christian and the priest <laughs> is like get the fuck away from me I cannot stand you any longer Um, (laughs) so he's like, don't, don't talk to me about your past sins anymore, please. And then Ignatius is like, but the past is always the past. Like the past is being added to constantly. Like that sentence was in the past. That sentence was in the past. (laughs) The priest is like, like, you have
1: anxiety.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Just smacks him across the face. So no one's advice can help him be less anxious about it. So he decides to just take up more ascetic practices. He prays on his knees for seven hours a day. He increases his dosage of self-mutilation two, three times a day. Okay, and one day he says, Oh, Lord, help me, for I find no remedy among men, nor in any creature. If I thought I could find one, no labor would seem too great to me. Show me someone. Oh, Lord, where may I find one? I am willing to do anything to find relief. And while he's saying this, he's, like, actively fighting against the impulse to jump out the window, like, head first, and just, like, end it all. Um, The only thing stopping him is that that would also be a sin. (laughs) So, yeah, he's going through a rough time. So he decides he should take up a hunger strike. (laughs) And after a week, his confessor orders him to stop it. So that doesn't work either. And he is tempted to give everything up and go back to his old life. He's like, you know what? This is so terrible. I'm in such inner turmoil that I'm just going to say, fuck it. And I'm going to like go back to whatever, like go back home. When all at once he feels peace, and because he's he says this, he says because he spent so much time in prayer that he can, dis- he can discern the voice of God from the voice of the devil, and he's certain that this is God's voice, so he resolves to never speak of his past sins and confession again, and he finally has a bit of peace about them. Um, so that was a big step. So he carries on in this way at the Dominican monastery. He has visions all the time of the Trinity, of Mary, of the creation of the world. And specifically, he has a recurring vision of like a circle of like blinding white light surrounded by like golden rays, which if you've seen like a monstrance, which is the thing that they put the Eucharist in during adoration, that's exactly what it looks like. So like that's kind of his most common vision. Um, and if you look at like the, the emblem of like the Jesuit order, it looks similar to that. So that's where that comes from. But the thing is he has, he does have trouble like explaining his visions to other people, which often leaves him like frustrated and embarrassed. Finally, um, after recovering from a fever, um, that brought him, like, really close to death. He decided he, he better continue his pilgrimage because um, life is short. So he takes a boat from Barcelona to Italy, and then he starts out on foot for Rome because he wants to get a blessing from the Pope before he goes to Jerusalem. Um, while he's in Rome, uh, first of all, these are plague times. There's another outbreak of the plague just wandering around <laughs> in Italy. Um, So lots of the city gates are closed and he ends up having to sleep outside most of the time. But while he's in Rome, everyone he speaks to tells him not to go to Jerusalem without any food or money, which was his plan, um, because he is going to die if he tries to do that. (laughs) Um, But he says like, no, if I really need food, like God will send it to me somehow. Um, He's got a lot of confidence uh ignatius does um so he gets his blessing from the pope and he sets out for venice where he boards a boat to jerusalem on the boat he does not vibe with the energy of the sailors um he doesn't like what they do (laughs) he's not having a good time on the boat all the sailors despise him they like, to the point where they are about to maroon him on a deserted island. <laughs> I think I would also,
1: like, be a little put off by this weird homeless looking man on the boat <laughs> who starves himself for Jesus. And limps around like
0: a weirdo. <laughs> and just, like, telling you not to drink rum. Like, what a fucking buzzkill. Um, so they're about to throw him off the boat. Um, But they do make it to the island of Cyprus without abandoning or murdering him. Cyprus? I don't know. Um, And then finally, he takes another boat to Jerusalem. So he does eventually get there. Um, While he's there, he is so moved by all the holy places that he's seeing that he feels a deep desire to stay in Jerusalem. He wants to live there forever. Um, so he goes to the guy in charge of like the Franciscans in Jerusalem and he begs him to let him stay in a monastery there. But the guy says like, no, you're not even a monk. (laughs) Like you can't live here. Just some weird guy. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know you. Like who even are you? Ignatius is like, Jesus will vouch for me. Just ask him. (laughs) He's like, yeah, I don't. The line's busy. Like I can't reach Jesus all the time. And he says, like, no, everything's full, which, like, might have been a lie. <laughs> <laughs> he took one whiff of Ignatius. It's like, we have no rooms. No room at the inn. Sorry. <laughs> Sayonara. And he's like, you think you're the only Catholic to have this idea that they want to live in Jerusalem? Like, you are not the first to do it. You're not special. You can't live here with us. You can't sit with us! Um. So... Ignatius leaves Jerusalem and returns to Venice. Um, when he's there, he has another existential crisis. Like eighty-five percent of his life is <laughs> existential crisis, and he thinks, like, okay, so it's not God's plan that I end up in Jerusalem. So, what the fuck is His plan? Like, what am I supposed to do? And he decides to return to Barcelona to study. Um, but he doesn't sail like he did last time. He wants to walk. And this is a gigantic war zone. Like all the way from Italy to Spain is one big war zone. <laughs> so there are French and Spanish armies everywhere. so he's <laughs> instantly captured as a spy. <laughs> and I thought this part was like so funny. He's interrogated. Um, He obviously knows nothing, has no useful information. Like they can tell that right away, pretty much. The guards steal his cloak, which is like his only remaining possession. And they bring him before their commander. And in his head, Ignatius is like, okay, I'm in a bit of an ethical dilemma. Because (laughs) I don't want to bow before this commander and give him the honor, which the Bible tells us is only for God, like you shouldn't bow before anybody else. But I also don't want to die. (laughs) Um, So maybe if I'm like, super polite in the way that I speak to him, um, and I don't offend him in any way, maybe it'll be okay that I'm not gonna like bow before him. So that's what's going on in his head. Um, But the way it manifests (laughs) is that while he's pleading his case in front of the commander, he's taking these long pauses <laughs> after every single word, while he tries to figure out what to say. <laughs> until the commander's like, <laughs> the "Commander's like, this man is not right in that. <laughs> he's like, just give him back his coat and let I'm him put go. him back where you found." Him. <laughs> exactly (laughs) i just picture him like my name is have you seen
1: those tiktoks of like how would you get your captor to return you after like an hour
0: (laughs) yes yes And I was thinking of the one where the girl was like, one time looking back, I think I almost got sexually trafficked, but I was too stupid (laughs) and they didn't want me anymore. (laughs) Like they were like, get in the car. And I was like, why? (laughs) Anyway. Yeah. So the commander's like, just get him out of here. Like, let him go. He's not right. Um, So as he's leaving he meets this Spanish nobleman whom he had actually met like years ago when he was in the army and the nobleman puts him on a ship to Barcelona he's like you are struggling just please accept this as a gift from me like God told me to do this if that makes you feel better. Um, So he makes it back to Barcelona and he begins his studies and apparently the devil himself was tormenting him with his grammar. Because he was unable to retain anything grammar related, It's not that he was stupid. It's the devil's work. That's my new excuse. <laughs> the devil is just tormenting me. Um, I feel that way about all kinds of math.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, while he's studying in Spain and writing his spiritual exercises, both in Barcelona and in Alcala, he makes friends with some alumbrados who you actually brought up way back when um the alumbrados the funny it's funny because the translation is illuminati (laughs) (laughs) but it's not that kind of illuminati um (laughs) these were a group of devout women who claimed to practice the ideals of the franciscan movement But they had been brought before the Inquisition basically because they were female mystics, Um, like the Beguines. uh, Women can't have a personal connection to God. They need the influence of a male intermediary. Um, Otherwise, who knows what they're doing with their weird female minds (laughs) (laughs) in their vaginas. Who knows? Um, So Ignatius makes friends with some alumbrados and some of his male classmates and together they form this kind of like club where they beg on the streets and they wear like religious type clothing, but obviously they don't belong to an order. And so like Ignatius will be preaching on the streets very publicly and the women will be like convulsing and like writhing in ecstasy on the ground. Like it doesn't, look good. It
1: <laughs> is a weird club to join. I That pitch meeting. <laughs> what if, hear me out,
0: you just like wriggle around like a worm in the dirt. Mm-hmm. Just an idea. So Ignatius is thrown in prison and his noble friends want to get him out as soon as possible because he does have friends like contrary to the way that it seems. It's just um, a... People who feel bad for him. Honestly, you're probably right. They're like, oh my God, look, look at him. He can't even stand up straight. Like, this is just sad. He's got a leg made of Play-Doh. Like, it's not, (laughs) it doesn't have a chance. So they offer to bail him out, but he says like, no, I actually like love this journey for me. Like, I can have visitors who I can talk to about God and I don't have any of my like worldly temptations. So this is great i love to be in i am flourishing here <clears throat> <laughs> i am thriving <laughs> meanwhile he's like scratching on the walls with his long fingernail. and his friends are like you're what in prison like he's more cuckoo than we thought he was <laughs> they're like oh my god maybe this was a huge mistake let's just um, leave him yeah <laughs> No, some of his friends actually like commit crimes so they can get thrown in jail with him. It's like kind of sweet. In prison, he is questioned about his practices and his motives. Um, of particular interest to the authorities is a pilgrimage taken by a noblewoman and her daughter to a shrine, which was about 1,300 kilometers away. Um, they had set out on foot, alone, with no money, no weapons, and no food. And the authorities knew that they were friends of Ignatius, so they asked him whether he told them to go on that pilgrimage. And he says, no, 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 I tried to dissuade them. I told them it would be too dangerous, but they went anyway. And so they held him in prison until the women were found and brought back to the city safely, which (laughs) implies that if they had been injured or killed, he would probably have suffered some consequences for that Um, but he got very lucky so the ruling or whatever it would be called like the decree about ignatius and his friends is that they have to dress like the other students and that they should refrain from preaching until they finish their studies and ignatius is like yes you're so right i was too eager i need to have a better perspective before i start teaching Um, So he gets out of jail, and he immediately moves to France to continue studying at the University of Paris. And he moves there at a good time, like for once in his life, he has good timing, because Catholic sentiments are positive. They had just kicked John Calvin out of Paris. (laughs) Things are going great for the Catholics. Um, So he makes a lot of friends. And two friends in particular were his besties for the resties, a Spaniard named Francis Xavier and an Italian named Peter Faber. And these three formed the Society of Jesus. They're the very first members and they quickly gain six more members. And then from then, it's kind of like exponential growth. So the first ones are all fellow classmates and all of them make this solemn vow to give their lives to this organization they founded. Like it's very intense. So of course, the next logical step is to go on pilgrimage to Rome to get their order approved by the Pope. Um, They succeed. And in 1540, Ignatius became the first superior general of the Society of Jesus. Um, And then they traveled all around Europe, setting up schools, eventually colleges, eventually seminaries. Um, this is when a lot of the co- the correspondence comes in, so he's sending all these letters all over Europe and eventually over the world to his friends whom he's placed in, different, in charge of different areas. Um, in one letter to Francis Xavier, Ignatius famously writes, go set the world on fire. I can't even tell you how many fucking times I heard that growing up Catholic, like That's a big one. Go set the world on fire, (laughs) which, like... Burn it all down. Looking back, not quite clear. (laughs) Instructions unclear, arrested for arson. (laughs) Yeah, light it on fire. Watch it burn. Um, So in 1548, Ignatius was summoned before the Roman Inquisition to have his book Spiritual Exercises Examined. It was found to be not heretical, so it was subsequently published and circulated. The book remains a favorite of all kinds of Catholic retreats and other Christian retreats, apparently, I found out. Um, To this day, most retreats model their structure on what's outlined in the book. Um, Basically, it focuses on an escape from the secular world in order to manifest a personal discernment of God's will for your life. It's divided into four parts, each part meant to last a week, but they can be, the parts can be shortened if necessary. Um, The first part is devoted to examining your sins and meditating on God's mercy. Um, Then the, um, then meditations on the life of Jesus, then the passion, and finally the the resurrection and God's love for you. And applying that to the retreats that I've been on, it's exactly the same. So, we're still using this structure in the modern, in modern Catholicism, and if you think about it, it's kind of like the hero's journey. It's like you go to the underworld, you come back from the underworld, and you're changed. So some things that the early Jesuit order did, um, like I've mentioned before about them, their founding principle is like evangelization, in the same way that the Carmelites have like uh contemplation and they pick one divine mystery and they pray about it for the rest of their lives um the jesuits are very much like in the world preaching um doing works of charity stuff like that and so the early jesuits Brought that energy to the church itself because at the time Rome was not a very holy place. Um, Like, for example, uh, when Ignatius told one of his noble women friends that he was going on a journey to Rome, she said, oh, no, I don't think that's such a good idea because you'll come back and you'll be a bad person. (laughs) Um, Like it was just a nest of like corruption and like really bad stuff. Like it was the time of like the Borgia Pope, Machiavelli, the Medici family. Like it's bad news. So um, Ignatius is a scholar, he has a master's degree, not that that makes you a scholar, but like (laughs) rare for the time. Not a ton of clergy were super educated at the time. So Ignatius insists on intense intellectual training for the Jesuits. You have to study before you can do any kind of preaching. So these become some of the best educated men in Europe, not just in religious orders. And they go after the corruption that they see in the church they're like really vocal against it and against Protestantism as the counter counter reformation really picks up like they basically are the counter reformation. Um, By 1556 the Jesuit order had already founded 74 colleges on three different continents moved pretty fast. Um, The Jesuit course of study was revolutionary in the way that it incorporated the classical teachings of Renaissance humanism into the Catholic scholastic structure. In 1599, the Jesuit Ratio Studiorum, which is the course of study that all future future Jesuits undertake, including like, for example, St. Jean de Brebeuf and St. John Ogilvie, Um, This course of study became the foundation for a liberal arts education. So classical literature, poetry, the arts, philosophy, rhetoric, all that good stuff. As we've seen on the podcast, the Jesuits traveled all over the globe, not always with the best of intentions, but they did do it. Um, And they often interfered with other colonial forces. For example, the Spanish and Portuguese monarchs sent colonizers to the Americas with the intention of enslaving the native people, and the Jesuits were often obstacles to that. Not to say that all of their works were good, they did a lot of harm, they spread horrible diseases, they erased a lot of native culture. I only bring it up to say that the efforts of the Jesuit order were pretty independent of European monarchies and often those monarchies were antagonistic towards them. Another thing that distinguishes the Jesuit order from other religious orders is that they have a special connection to the Pope. So when you join the order, you take a solemn vow of dedication to the Pope and to carry out the Pope's commands commands in a way that not every order does. So they're constantly prepared for any special missions from the Pope. Um, So I don't have time to get into everything those crazy Jesuits did, but I'm sure I will talk about many more Jesuits in the future. I think they're interesting. They're like weird little guys with like lots of anxiety. (laughs) They all have a death wish. (laughs) Um, Ignatius didn't live to see all of the glory of the order. On July 31st, 1556, he died of Roman fever, which was the nickname for a strain of malaria common in Italy at the time. His autopsy revealed, which I was like, autopsy? When is this? But then I was like, oh, it's Renaissance times. Okay. Um, His autopsy revealed organ damage, uh, specifically kidney stones. And he had had a lot of, like, abdominal pain during his life, which he, like, assumed was, like, the devil. He was like, no, it's kidney stones. (laughs) Oh, hon. He was buried in Rome. He was beatified by Pope Paul V in 1609 and canonized by Pope Gregory XV in 1622. His feast day is July 31st. It's coming up um, in a celebration. Why don't you get yourself thrown in county jail? (laughs) Mix it up. Put put my life in the hands of a donkey. (laughs) (laughs) Ask a donkey to commit murder with you. (laughs) Walk someplace really far with no plan. <laughs> Shatter the shit out of your leg <laughs> and put it back together so. with some pipe cleaners and Play-Doh and then walk barefoot for 500 miles. Yeah,
1: that's St. Ignatius of Loyola. <laughs> he's he's interesting. He's going to lodge himself in my head as this <laughs> weird wandering homeless man with Play-Doh leg. <laughs> Who knows literally nobody liked
0: and they just pushed him from country to country <laughs> just bounced it around and he goes to the pope and he's like i have the best idea i will travel everywhere in the world and the pope is like done check
1: <laughs> <laughs> next. as long as he's not here <laughs> next I think a second group of people went better than, like, the first with the, the women writhing on the ground and <laughs> in the streets.
0: Yeah, well, that was kind of a big thing that I didn't want to get into at all. But that was, like, one of the reasons that the Jesuit order still to this day doesn't allow any women. Like, it's only men. Like, that was part of the founding principle.
1: <laughs> it's like, we included women in my first group, and it didn't go very well. So now all men... Exactly. Yeah. I like, I feel like maybe it wasn't successful because you had them
0: writhe on the ground while you begged. <laughs> right. We can just calibrate. We don't have to exclude an entire gender, but eh. guess not. <laughs> guess not. Yeah. Well, he wins some, you lose some. <laughs> we lose a lot. You lose a
1: lot. <laughs> a whole lot. We're going to lose a lot in my story. Ooh, can't wait.
0: Um, so for anybody curious, I found out the name of the show that I was talking about. It was called Joan of Arcadia, and it was like a modern day suburban Joan of Arc who would get messages from God and have to carry out like a specific task each episode. It was on CBS from 2003 to 2005, and Joan was played by Amber Tamblyn from Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. That's a very
1: specific audience for a very specific show. And I was that audience. (laughs) (laughs) I'm gathering that
0: (laughs) I do remember really liking it but I was like eight years
1: old so like grain of salt I like to go back to things that I watched as a kid and watch them again because sometimes they don't hold up but I recently went back and rewatched Ghost Whisperer and Mm. just the nostalgia of the clothing just made me feel so at home for a little bit weirdly my dad loved that show (laughs) <laughs> that's very
0: strange you would always have it on and I'd come back I'd come in and be like are you watching Ghost Whisper again like enough that's so funny
1: <laughs> you liked it I love that show so nice to know I've got that in common with your father <laughs> <laughs> with my dad whom you've never met
0: nope. <laughs> yep <laughs>
1: Okie dokie. So today, um, I am talking about Boudicca, mostly because you said soldiers and then followed up the text like two days later with the name Boudicca, and um, I had no energy to think beyond that. <laughs> Already, <Alrighty. laughs> nope. I worked 110 hours last week, and between that, there was nothing happening in my brain other than the things I was doing so makes sense um, you have this half of the episode like it's entirely your to thank why it (laughs) happened (laughs) I am excited because I know vaguely who she is but I don't know any specifics so this will be good And that was kind of me, too, is that I knew of her through, like, literature references and things, but I'd never actually read about her, so. Yeah. She's pretty badass, though. Cool. For anyone who does not know, Boudica is a legendary warrior from Britain back in 60 AD when it was not Great Britain. Um, It's part of the Roman Empire. She is about half fact, half myth and is both a Celt and has a connection to Druids, a connection I'll get into a little more in a second, but a quick disclaimer that I will not be talking about the Celts or the Druids today. If you want to know more about both of those things, head over to... Uh, episode 21 xoxo caesar which takes place about a hundred years before my story today we name things really stupid and then we refer to them so casually
0: (laughs) with such like seriousness episode 21 xoxo caesar (laughs) Head back to semen loopholes. (laughs) Episode six. Ah, yes. Semen loopholes.
1: Mm -hmm. Or, you know, check out a literal dick move. (laughs) Look, it's called scholarly research. Yes, it is. Um, Episode 21 takes place about 100 years before my story today. It goes into detail about who the Celts were, how the area was divided, what Druids, ancient and modern were, are... Um, And as far as historical context goes, it's not entirely far off from today's episode. The only major difference here being that we're talking Roman Empire today, and that episode was the Roman Republic, which ended in 27 BC. Okay. So, you know, not a huge span of time difference, not Mm -hmm. even geographically that much different. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm going to give a quick shout out to Kings and Generals on YouTube really quickly. I watched their video on Caesar's battles for episode 21 and I watched their video on Boudicca's for today. Cool. Honestly, their videos are like fantastic. They break down the battles visually so you can see who is installed in which towns, where they're moving to. And then as the battles occur, they zoom in and show like all of the troop movements on the field so you can see like how victory is achieved. Ooh. It's so much better than reading about these events or than Mm. someone throwing up like a single map on the screen and just talking about everything vaguely. Yeah, that's really cool. What's it called? Kings and Generals? Kings and Generals. Okay, I love their videos so much. I can rewatch them a hundred times. But yeah, my brain enjoys the the stimulation of seeing everything broken down like that quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, So let's get into who Boudica is. Boudicca is the queen of a Celtic tribe of people called the Iceni, who Mm. live on the eastern coast of Britannia. And Britannia is what uh, that chunk of land is at this point in time. She has two daughters that are unnamed because women are not important. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. So far. These, Yeah. These daughters are around 11, 12, 13 years old, probably in that range, um, it's been said. And she has a husband, the king, uh, and his name is, and I've never said this out loud, and I probably should have practiced this more than <laughs> in my head. Uh <laughs> <Larry> McNeary. <laughs> it all connects. Uh Procetagus or um Prasuticus. Sure. We have uh two Roman historians' accounts of Boudica, Tacitus and Cassius Dio. Uh mm-hmm. both notably um were not there. Neither of these men were there for mm-hmm. any of these events at all. Typical. Um Mm -hmm. tacitus writing a couple decades later and cassius writing over a century later oh geez louise keep that in mind as i speak um and keep in mind too that their stories differ from one another Mm. this is cassius's description of Boudicca, though quote in stature she was very tall An appearance most terrifying and the glance of her eye most fierce and her voice was harsh. A great mass of the tawniest hair fell to her hips. Around Mm. her neck was a large golden necklace and she wore a tunic of diverse colors over which a thick mantle was fastened with a brooch.
0: Mm -hmm. She's hot. She is.
1: <laughs> Which is funny you say that because I literally right next, one guy I listened to said this and then followed it with the statement, she was ugly. Wow. And I'm not, I'm not sure how he extrapolated that from any of the details here. It's like, she... Had a harsh voice and fierce eyes. She was just hideous. <laughs> what part, of, excuse me, tawny
0: hair falling to her waist, what part of that screams, I'm ugly to you? You Being super fucking tall? I'm sorry, you insecure <laughs> little man. She was taller than me and she had a loud voice. Oh, ugly.
1: <laughs> <she>. <laughs> Fuck you. I love tall women. <laughs> So much. (laughs) I always wanted to be a tall woman because they just look like they can kick people's asses by like default. They really
0: do. I don't consider myself tall per se, but I was tall growing up and I liked to think that I was better than everybody else simply because I was taller.
1: I, alas, am 5'2 and cannot get in my own kitchen cabinets. (laughs) I am a threat to no one. (laughs) Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: practice my arresting bitch face for a reason. That's true. You do have a really good RBF.
1: I do. <laughs> <laughs> I was very fed up with a lot of the documentaries and texts and podcasts and blah, blah, blah that I have watched, listened to. Um, just a lot of talking over female experts in general or excluding them entirely and so much casual sexism um an example of this sexism in cassius's text so even in like these quote-unquote primary texts that we have um is that he introduces Boudicca as quote a britain woman of the royal family and possessed of greater intelligence than often belongs to women oh fun thank you for that Uh uh-huh i just i was really living for all of this (laughs) to have these male historians tell this story this way and then a bunch of like modern dudes also tell this story this way very nice love to
0: see that nothing's changed absolutely nothing god (sighs) oh
1: So uh Boudica's name is spelled a variety of ways, like a fuck ton of ways. Um, about every time somebody wrote about her, they spelled her name completely differently. Mm. Um, but Boudica, why did I write it like this? Boudica is the commonly accepted spelling now. You can't read my fucking phone.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I do that to you all the time. I'm like, I'll remember to spell it out. No, nope, never I did not
1: uh b-o-u-d-i-c-a uh Mm -hmm. so the singular c is the commonly accepted spelling now um because boudica b-o-u-d-i-k-a is a proto-celtic adjective for victorious Mm. um which is likely where boudica gets her name from so cool we there was some guy who went in. And he's like, you know what? We're we're gonna settle this debate like once and for all. We're gonna go into like the etymology and figure out where it comes from. Love that. Yes. So some people say Budga's name isn't her real name. I guess because it's kind of on the nose, victorious, and blah blah blah. That she took this name on as a warrior. Um, others say she took on this name to align herself with the goddess Boudica, or the goddess Andraste, also known as Victory, or the goddess Brigantia, also known as Victory. Okay. Um, which kind of reminded me of, like, you and confirmation saints and, like, taking on their names and everything. Just kind of that, like, bond parallel, whatever. Yeah, that's true. Also, my given
0: name means princess, and I mean like aren't i
1: <laughs> mine means god is my oath and i did not take that seriously
0: <laughs> <laughs> you broke that oath yeah pretty quickly <laughs> first chance you got you're like, <laughs> snip snip god <laughs>
1: <laughs> whoopsie daisy <laughs> that's hilarious uh anyway uh, some sources use this whole like named after a goddess because of a goddess, whatever thing is justification for calling Boudicca a druid, um, even though she isn't explicitly stated to be a druid anywhere. Mm-hmm. Other academics say that because she is a woman who holds a lot of power and that druids could be both male or female, more on that in episode 21, um, that it's not entirely out of the question that she could be a druid. Uh, Mm -hmm. that's justification number two Um, and I will get into her religious battlefield practices later which is justification number three um, which may or may not be real something I'll also get into later Um, the point is buddhika being a druid is speculation don't let anybody tell you that she absolutely is that it's not true got it I will not let anybody
0: ever tell me that (laughs) I will say fuck you that is
1: not true i like knowing whenever things are like speculation because yeah i do too so i was just people, messing with you yeah <laughs> but there's so many people out there who try to feed you that shit like it's fact and if you know that it's not it's like you are like, just knocking out of your ass yeah it's like no you're wrong
0: like mm-hmm. just you're wrong so there's that and
1: i like to do that to men so <laughs> it's really fun they it's hate, really it. Fun. They hate <laughs> it so much First time I ever corrected a guy on what the uh, the pentagram stood for. Mm. It was like I'd killed his mother. <laughs> <laughs> you did,
0: because the pentagram is a symbol of the devil. Yep, clearly. That's a fact.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, Boudica. Boudica is known for her revolt against the Romans and her slaughter of them for anyone who has never heard her story at all. Um, But to understand why that revolt takes place, we have to know what's going on in Britannia at this time. Mm. Um, So the king of the Britons has died. I didn't write down when. I think it was in like the 40 AD area, mid 40 AD. Britannia is being occupied by the Romans who have taken over capitals and tribal lands. And while this is welcome in some places, um, because, you know, influx of trade and all of that, Mm -hmm. uh, it is not welcome in others. Uh, Boudicca's tribe, the Iceni, are a rare holdout. They're clients of the Roman Empire, not subjects of the Roman Empire. So they Mm -hmm. get to maintain their own king. Mm -hmm. Essentially, the agreement is, like, they, they pay tribute, and they still get to kind of be their own thing. Okay. Their king being um, Prostegus or Prostagus, however you want to enunciate that, Boudicca's husband. Um, the Iceni are also wealthy, and you can probably figure out where wealthy and does not completely belong to us is going to go. Not good. No um no one thing the romans do around this time that is extremely unfair other than tax the shit out of the celts and use Mm. their money to do things like say build roman temples and celtic capitals that they then make the celts go worship at Mm, awkward Um, and it's not like temples with their gods it's like temples to their emperors Mm. that they have to go worship that's not good no no it's just a shitty practice. Mm-hmm. Um, I can hear it, cat. What do you want? <laughs> okay, come in then. So one of the things that they do is that they lend like roughly $60 million worth of coinage and like, uh, adjusted for like inflation and like what it is worth in modern money. Mm -hmm. Um, they lend like $60 million worth of money to these people so that they can participate in the economy. But these people didn't ask for it like Mm -hmm. at all. They just gave it to them. Mm Um, And they especially didn't want it because it was given to them with the condition that they had to pay it back with interest. What the fuck? (laughs) They're like, thanks for this gift, but it's not that thoughtful. Pass. Yeah. Um, Now the Romans, like dicks, decide to ask for their loan back in one lump sum. Oh my God. Cough up the money or else. Oh boy. Um. And like at a shitty time, too, because this is somewhere around the time that the king of the Iceni dies, who, mm-hmm. when he dies, names his daughters co-heirs with the emperor of Rome in the hopes of maintaining local rule in a way to either slowly transition his people into being under the authority of the Romans, so it's not complete culture shock for them, mm. or so that his kingdom and his wealth don't fall completely into the hands of the Romans. I got both answers okay um hmm interesting this backfires yeah (laughs) (laughs) as you can guess yeah yeah um rome is within its rights to come assess the situation after the king dies because female heirs don't count like That's not how you get to pass shit down. Even if the Celts were like people who pass stuff down, they elect people. So like he fucked a whole bunch of shit up in his will. He did not read the directions. <laughs> no. He was very scared about the Romans taking his shit and he broke a lot of rules. Mm. Um, but uh, females don't count. And they also should have been left the kingdom because that's what's done. Like whenever the king, the client dies, the client relationship ends until Rome establishes a new king slash client. Okay. So they don't, they don't get to just keep being their own thing. Okay. Um, so Romans come to the area uh, and they want the kingdom. They mm-hmm. want the land. They want their money back. They want the Essenes' wealth in general uh, to belong to their empire, not just like the taxes and tributes that they're paying. Mm-hmm. They want their men for their armies. So Prasidicus's land is, quote, pillaged by centurions, his household by slaves, as though they had been prizes of war. Yikes. Hmm. Which one historian said is... Especially egregious because the Iceni as Roman clients should have been seen as Romans so Rome is effectively slaughtering slaving raping humiliating its own allies slash like people Um, it's not a great look for them. No, I wouldn't say so. <laughs> no, uh, especially to like the other people that like they're <laughs> allied with and stuff. They're like, oh, that's what happens to to us. You're like, oh, man. <laughs> 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 Among the many atrocities the Romans inflict on the Asinians, Two are major tipping points. Uh, one, Boudica, after asserting that she's queen, is stripped and flogged in front of her people. Oh, Lord. Uh, this is an extremely brutal punishment to flog somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, and as if this is not enough, her daughters, who are supposed to succeed her husband, are raped by Roman soldiers. Oh, my God. A lot of accounts, and a lot of men's accounts especially, I found will water that detail down and say abused instead mm-hmm. of raped, which yeah. I think is a cop-out. It is. Female historians didn't shy from the girls' assault, and they talked about how being assaulted so young, maybe having their virginity taken, maybe being impregnated was like a slap in the face to the Asini because, you know, this is essentially their royal bloodline because Boudica is still queen and so their bloodline is essentially being interrupted and perhaps stolen from them yeah that's disgusting it really is Anywho, Boudica is rightfully pissed off after this happens mm-hmm. on behalf of herself on behalf of her daughters on behalf of her people and so she reaches out to neighboring tribes and it's like hey do you also hate these fucking Roman bastards as much as I do? <laughs> hmm <laughs> Cassius attributes this extremely long speech to her, which is also kind of funny and does a surprisingly good job of seeing this conflict through the eyes of the Celts. I feel like he was a little sympathetic to them, Mm. um, or liked them at least. Uh, In the speech, she says things about how delicate the Romans are, how they have to have all their food processed, how they can't even cross rivers with boats. (laughs) When the Celts can swim rivers naked and they can eat anything they find, like straight out of the ground. Mm. She says It's weird the Romans sleep with young dudes. Uh and yeah. Point, yeah. <laughs> and points out the Romans are the ones who are ruled by a woman because Nero is essentially a pretty liar-playing Nancy boy. Whoa. So. <laughs> okay. Yeah, she, she points out like he's effeminate. He sings. Like, what the fuck? Really? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, the female historians here had a lot of great commentary on. This being a story about, you know, a masculine woman versus an effeminate man. Um, Who is the hero? Who is the villain? What does this say about gender roles? Mm. Um, So it was a really fun thing to sit down with and think about. Mm -hmm. Um, All of Boudicca's campaigning helps her gather about 120,000 soldiers. Wow. And her first target is a city called Kamalodunum to the south which was the capital of the trinovantes um one of her allies uh but is currently a roman colony where roman veterans are stationed but also where they can pull like future soldiers from if they need Mm -hmm. one of those roman temples the celts got taxed uh to pay for is here um, and now I watch some men's videos where they vaguely and it feels purposely say that Boudicca defeated a quote, unguarded Dunham, hmm. like to diminish her accomplishment. Right. Like, the only reason she got away with it is because it didn't have many guards. Why didn't um, I have any guards? And this is why I call bullshit. So um, Governor Suetonius, a main character in our story, is a conqueror. And he has done absolutely nothing to fortify the cities that he's claimed, including Camelodunum, which belonged to the Trinivantes, Boudica's allies. There mm. is no way that the Trinivantes and Boudica do not know these cities are not fortified in any way. Right. And I would also be surprised if she did not know that Suetonius and his army are currently in the Northwest in Mona on a campaign because uh, another source, I didn't write this down at all um, and I'm fired up. So I'm just going to talk about it, but it uh, another source talked about how while Suetonius is up there and he's campaigning and he's slaughtering Druids was a very big thing. Slaughtering Druids up there um, that that news, you know, could have gotten back to Uh, and her people and Mm -hmm. been one of the reasons that they were further enraged um, Mm -hmm. because that was going on at the same time. So Mm -hmm. I think it's unlikely that she did not know like all of these factors were at play. Right. It's not like she just showed up and was like, hey. And that's what the dudes say that she just got lucky. (laughs) She just showed up.
0: But... (laughs) stupid
1: yeah not only was Suetonius and his army up in Mona they took with them a legion from Dunham so they even took soldiers out of that city with them mm. Um. so they could not it was unguarded and they could not get back quickly they were too far away to do anything about it mm-hmm. so this is when she sacks the city and I think it was strategy I don't think it was luck right so that, uh, yeah, that's me calling bullshit. Uh, Camelodunum reaches out to a man named Decianus. I don't know. I didn't look it up. Uh, the procurator in Londinium. So it's, it's a city to the West for help. Um, but he's like, eh, how much damage can a bunch of barbarians led by a woman do? <laughs> I mean, I bet it's not even that big of a revolt. Mm. Um, and he sends 200 poorly armed slaves to help. And that's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Great. <laughs> <laughs> and guess what? They do not help. <laughs> <laughs> Shocking. Yeah. Boudicca wipes out any of the forces that come to deal with her and massacres the city. Burning, crucifying, hanging, the story goes. Then women and children. Until she traps the survivors in the temple of Claudius and burns it Woo! seeing all (laughs) the (laughs) vibes she burns enough stuff in the city that archaeology shows a level of scorching and burnt debris covering pottery and coins that is called the budican destruction horizon which is so awesome i have chills (laughs) i want a destruction horizon named after me i think you deserve it I think we all do. <laughs> At this point. <laughs> Doesn't every woman deserve her own destruction horizon? Yes. Yes, she does. Mm-hmm. I love that detail so much mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. you can find evidence of what she burned to the fucking ground still. Boudicca's next target is to the west, uh, a trade city called Londinium, the one I just mentioned that they called out for for help um, mm-hmm. for these people. Um, and though Suetonius made it there before her having heard about Dunham, a messenger um, came and told him, he thinks it's a better strategy to build up his army instead of attacking to sacrifice one city in order to save all of them. So he leaves, he just takes his men and he leaves and he lets Lindinium fall. Wow. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Brutal move. Um, Yeah, that's kind of, he's kind of a butthole. (laughs) Yes, he is. Cassius describes a number of horrors and tortures that the Celts inflict upon the Romans, which take with a grain of salt. Mm -hmm. um, Because the Celts are referred to as savages and barbarians by the Romans throughout Mm. these narratives. Fun. Yeah, but the story goes that the the Celts are targeting women, like very specifically it says women, mm-hmm. um, and cutting off their breasts and sewing them to their mouths. So why? it looks like they're eating them.
0: Oh, not to their own mouths. Okay. That makes <laughs> to the women's sense. mouths. I was like, why? <laughs> <laughs> I don't get it.
1: But I, I still don't really get it, but I... Okay. <laughs> it makes 17% more sense. Yeah. Not much. Yeah. Uh also says that they are impaling the women lengthwise um and slaughtering Romans as human sacrifices in their sacred groves, which grew some stuff, and uh, I've read so many things that say that druids did do human sacrifices, but not, like, with actual people. Like, they weren't actually... Slaughtering people and putting them on altars, it was, like, symbolic human mm. sacrifice. Like, I'm going to take your jewelry and put it on an altar. I yeah, so. like an effigy. Yeah. So, yeah, to just take all of this with a grain of salt. Okay. Anywho, as Budoka goes, she is amassing soldiers, her army growing to 230,000, it's said. So she has a huge force. Yeah. After Londinium, she heads northeast to a city named, uh, I didn't practice this either, Vrulimium? Sure. Vrulimium? I don't know. I didn't practice it. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry, guys. Uh, And destroys this town. Though a source says that the inhabitants here could have anticipated her arrival and fled prior to her showing up because there's a lack of coins found at the archaeological site, meaning they could have escaped with their wealth. Hmm. While these sackings have been occurring, Suetonius has been amassing his forces to about 11,000 men. And he leads his army to this road that we have a general idea of where it was at, but not really, called Watling Street. Um, And now Suetonius absolutely has the advantage here because he has... Rested forces who have not fought in a battle and he deliberately like drugged them out as far West as possible so that they got a long time to rest while Boudica's army has to march the entire way to them. Mm-hmm. He also has forces who have military training and he got to pick the playing field, right? which is this narrow patch of land with dense trees at its back and it's on a slant. So whenever the Celts fight them, they have to move uphill And they also have to funnel themselves into this narrow space so that they can't be attacking with a large amount of men at one time. Okay. So, yeah. He he knows what he's doing. He's just kind of a brutal shithead. Mm -hmm. Other advantages that the Romans have is that because they have this military training, they have more advanced maneuvers in the field. Uh, they also have the advantage of the fact that they fight in armor and with heavy metal shields, as opposed to the Celts who fight naked or they're chested in a lot of cases. Um, we've talked about them being the painted people because uh, the picks. Yeah. you've. I know you've talked about that before in past episodes. Mm. Yeah. St. Columba, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's where it comes from is that they like paint themselves instead of wearing all this heavy armor. Yeah. Um and they use wooden shields. The Romans also anticipate the Celts doing this and bring spears specifically to throw and launch at the people who are not wearing armor and to lodge into the Celts wood shields so that they have to drop them. Because it's not like you can yank the spear back out of your shield. It's just useless now. Okay. And I've I've seen that before. That like it's just it's too heavy. You can't do bullshit with it. Yeah, uh, so even though, um, a second, I didn't write the sentence correctly, I'm gonna pretend I understand what I was saying here. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of extra words here that I'm gonna read you like so. Even though, once because forces is how that sentence starts,
0: (laughs) yeah, my pretty much all my sentences start that way, and I just (laughs) charge through it.
1: Okay, so when the when Boudicca's army gets to Walling Street, they outnumber the Romans 20 to one. But this doesn't necessarily mean that they have the advantage. Uh, but they're confident enough that they're going to win that they do bring their wagons with them to circle them in at the back circle mm-hmm. themselves in at the back. Mm-hmm. And these wagons are carrying their kids infirm, and women who aren't fighting. Before the battle begins, Boudicca is recounted as standing in a chariot with her daughters, like riding through the ranks, giving another grand speech, this speech recounted by Tacitus. Um, But again, like uh, Cassius, Tacitus was not there Sources point out that it's really unlikely that Boudicca would have given a speech, that it was unlike Celts to just stand around like this. Mm. That they were the kinds of people who like screamed at the enemy and like boasted to each other and told stories and played music. Um mm. and that this very somber I'm gonna stand on a line and listen to a speech is a feature of Roman writing and Roman mm. war. Yeah. So, it was probably invented by these Roman historians. Mm-hmm. Celts also had female rulers in the past, and a chunk of Boudicca's army is women. Um, but in Tacitus's speech, so in the version of the speech that Tacitus gives, um, Boudicca puts a lot of weird emphasis on her being a woman. Like she has to bring it up multiple times. are <laughs> like, we know. <laughs> we're literally <laughs> we looking, looking. We're aware. It. Uh, Take into account, again, these are the narratives uh, written by the Romans who say that they slaughtered the Celts and the Druids and cut down their sacred groves only because they were offended that these guys practiced such horrific human sacrifice and Mm -hmm. hailing people and reading the future in their entrails and eating people and dedicating to them like dedicating them to their gods they had no other reason for massacring these people at all it was just because they were offended by the human sacrifice sure yeah and like i said in the druid episode the popular narrative is that the druids didn't write anything down maybe true maybe not but it gives the romans free reign to say whatever the fuck they want and they get to paint whatever picture of Boudica they want here. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Any picture that they want to. Cassius has her releasing a hare at one point in the story, a rabbit before the battle to see which way it runs. Um, a divination practice that is justification number three for Boudicca being a druid. Mm-hmm. Like if it runs in one way, the battle's going to go well. If it runs in another way, then you're fucked. So <laughs> it's kind of like putting your life in that donkey's hands. Like I really hope it goes the right way yeah either a donkey
0: or a rabbit this is a lot of responsibility to place on an animal
1: it really is <laughs> uh, it really is uh, who knows if this actually occurred um, at all it I don't know where it occurs in the story it's a little str- it makes it sound like it takes place when it's they're not currently at battle with the Romans so how the fuck would the Romans know. Yeah, Um, I mean, that would be kind of awkward. They're about to charge. She's like, wait, (laughs)
0: let
1: me just get out a rabbit. (laughs) Let me just eat this rabbit off the chariot and see where it goes. If it was way before the battle, like before they got there, how would they know if it was at the battle? We have just so many things of like, how the fuck did they hear her speech? How would they have heard it? How would they have seen her release this rabbit or have known what she was doing Mm -hmm. with it? There's just so much that it's obvious, like, making shit up. Mm-hmm. After releasing the hair, Boudica thanks the goddess Andraste and gives another really, really long speech that the Romans heard every word of because she <laughs> definitely was not speaking her native Celtic tongue, but was <laughs> definitely speaking their language. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, in this speech uh, to Andraste, she mentions being a woman several times again. Um, and mentions how Celtic women are just as valiant as men. Um, and it feels very performative on Cassius's part. Like he's fascinated with her and her people to the point that he's overshooting like back into sexism on accident. Mm, yeah. <laughs> he's like, Women are awesome, but we gotta emphasize that they're women 80 times when we call them awesome because that is exceptional. Yeah, well, that's interesting. It it feels very strange that it's not just like these women are great. It's like, and these women are women. Wait, <laughs> they're women, but wait for it. They're just as great as the men. What? What? What about that? But not really because they're women. So Yeah. <laughs> it's very strange. I don't understand these people with vaginas. <laughs> I don't understand how they're awesome, but they, they are. are. It's crazy. Yeah. So Cassius is like inching towards being like a feminist but he's he's not quite there yet
0: he's doing his best it was a tough time for feminists
1: (laughs) so (laughs) really tough time yeah once the battle starts it's essentially a free-for-all on the celts side where everyone is released into the battlefield to do whatever like we just have a bunch of really fierce warriors go out slaughter some romans um whereas the romans have horns and formations and tactics like Mm. you know we release everybody but we're still communicating with each other to change stuff on the battlefield Yeah. so the Romans launch a volley of spears to knock out the Celt's shields and also just fucking slaughter as many on the front lines as they can because they're not wearing armor and they also line themselves up into these triangle formations so that when they hit the enemy line it's not two walls hitting each other head on but instead them spearing through the enemy wall all like the tip of a sword mm, if you can visualize that fancy so immediately they've broken the celts line and are behind them and beside them which right. is like you're fucked immediately if you're not fighting the people in front of you if you're also fighting people behind you and beside you and in front of you yeah it's not great Mm-mm. um these guys have artillery and chariots and cavalry and metal shields and are using those to their advantage by swapping out soldiers behind them. So, like, putting up a wall and then swapping out people behind them so that they always have fresh soldiers in the front, mm-hmm. which the Celts do not get to do. And all of this they use to slaughter their way back to the Celts' wagons, trapping the Celts in like goats slaughtering most of them before they can find escape and slaughtering the people in the wagons. So the kids, the infirm, um, the women. They even kill their animals that they have tied to the wagons. Oh. It's said that eighty thousand of Boudicca's troops fall while the Romans lose only four hundred men. Mm.
0: That math ain't method. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it feels <laughs> it feels a little bit strange, but I also know like how fucking brutal like the Romans can be in yeah. war. There's a reason they took over so much shit, and it's because like fucking Suetonius literally let an entire city of people be slaughtered just for the sake of like building up his army and having a battlefield advantage.
0: Yeah. I'm just thinking, like, it would be my graduating class, not the high school population, the graduating class against the entire city that I grew up in. Like, that would <laughs> yes. be the ratio of people dead.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow. And some people say that uh, Burka's army could be exaggerated, but even if you divide the numbers down by five, they would have outnumbered, like, the Romans. So, mm-hmm. And the Romans are not counting they're injured at all. And this also does not include the number of men that Boudicca slaughtered in the other cities that she conquered. So, yeah. like, Camelodunum um, was mm-hmm. guarded, had, like, veteran soldiers stationed inside it, and she slaughtered them. And then anybody who came um, to, to help out, she killed them. So, they lost 400 men, but she also killed several soldiers on the way. Yeah. Um, I think it said that Nero sent a replacement of, like, 7,000 soldiers or something after this. I remember vaguely reading that. So mm-hmm. um, she, she offed a good number of them. Mm-hmm. It's said that Boudicca flees the battlefield and either kills herself with poison because she knows it's over and the Romans will come for her and kill her or make a slave of her, whatever. Um, Or that she simply just dies of illness. Hmm. Tacitus says one, Cassius says the other. So, you know, that's how it goes. Um, And that either means that like, she's a coward, like twice over. She ran away from the battlefield and then she killed herself. Um, or she's a coward who dies in, like, pouring obscurity. She ran away from the battlefield and then she just gets sick and she dies.
0: Um, is it weird to say I hope she killed herself? Mm. (laughs) i I'm not glad that she dies, but, like, I kind of like that as an ending better.
1: I like her dying on the battlefield. Well, yeah, ideally. (laughs) Ideally. I don't know. I just feel like both of these stories just rob her of, like, any and all valor.
0: Yeah, in that's... a way
1: that, like, they would want to do to a female ruler. Right.
0: Yeah, I didn't even consider that she probably just died in battle. That's way better.
1: Yeah, I would definitely have her dying in battle. So I don't know. Um Another theory is that her own people killed her. So, again, another way to, like, completely rob her of, mm-hmm. like, any of her valor. Um these narratives written by Romans who were not there I personally don't see Boudicca as a woman who would have given up Mm -hmm. um she's this creature of rage and spite who massacred an estimated 80,000 people total for Mm. revenge so her just like running away and doing nothing feels very strange to me yeah that's true and she killed these people not to, like, install herself as queen or anything. <laughs> she didn't want to be emperor of the land. She just literally wanted revenge. Mm-hmm. That was it. That was her whole goal. Yeah. Nice. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, some theorize her grave is beneath King's Cross Station. Um, Like, the train station. <laughs> like, platform nine and three quarters situation. I can't remember which platforms they say, like 9, 10, 11, like one of those. Um,
0: <laughs> what if it's literally platform nine and, three <laughs> 9 and 3 quarters from Harry Potter?
1: That is where boudica is located.
0: I'm going to believe that from now on, and I'm going to tell people that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> i read other articles that try to link her to various archaeological finds um none of which have been proven so they have found like bones and like burials stuff like that and they've been like you know this is celtic it could have been Budica, but we have absolutely nothing that tells us that it is right now mm-hmm. um we just can't find anything to tell us that it's not right now so <laughs> okay <laughs> <laughs> but they've done that with like multiple sites Mm. Uh, Boudica has a statue in London, which people find hilarious because it's the modern day version of the town that she raised to the ground. Mm. <laughs> so she just presides over it <laughs> in a chariot. Kind of nice. <laughs> yes. Uh, there is other art of her statues, I'll probably put on Instagram, poems. She fell out of history for a long time, but was resurrected in art such as in William Copper's ode to her and in Tennyson's poem about her Mm -hmm. and a number of other writings and drawings. Cool. Uh, Boudicca is aligned with queen Elizabeth I because Elizabeth is said to have given a speech to soldiers at Tilbury, not unlike Boudicca, something about like the Spanish armada. I didn't really read into it. Mm -hmm. Um, Elizabeth is also this independent, strong female ruler. So yeah. uh Boudicca's name does get dragged through the mud when James I succeeds Elizabeth. Oh gee. Yeah, you no, know, our favorite dude. <laughs> Good. Every time. Yeah, and I read something about how Milton like absolutely fucking like detested Boudica <laughs> <laughs> Oh man. And I hate when I find stuff like that out because I really wish some of our lit classes would have, did not have done like the death of the author thing where we didn't get to learn anything about them and we only read their works. I really wish we had the context of like who they were as people.
0: Yeah. I think context is important
1: whether or not you let
0: it like color your view of the author. I think it's important to know. Like, oh, these, these symbols could mean one thing, but the guy was a gigantic racist. So they <laughs> so probably it could also mean this. So the most common, like the most logical explanation is he's talking about <laughs> Black people. Like, oh, gee, what, a, what a, a shocking
1: lens to examine this through. Or like when they don't tell you all of the, the artists who are like queer and stuff like that and it's like that just changes the <laughs> entire meaning of all their art yeah they're like <laughs> she was definitely talking about a man and not her
0: roommate for 50 years
1: nope god damn it mm-hmm. i'd like to take some of my lit classes and just wring them by the neck um mm-hmm. anywho Boudica is later aligned with queen victoria Boudica victorious victoria the, mm-hmm. the, like she gets very famous for being victorious quote, namesake. Um, And Victoria is just like another queen at that. Uh, But in this case, people choose to put more emphasis on Boudicca being a mother and a wife, like Victoria was a good wife and a mother, Mm. um, to strip Boudicca of her, quote, negative qualities. Mm. Negative being her identity as this wrathful, conquering woman. So she was allowed to exist and to be admired, but with conditions Mm, mm -hmm. negative qualities to you maybe (laughs) exactly (laughs) exactly um you will find buddhika here and there on witch blogs because of her loose connection to druidry her proposed connection to that more obscure goddess buddhika and other goddesses and in general just her being a strong female to invoke uh, but that is Boudicca, queen of the Sinai, who very nearly knocked the Romans out of Britannia, of which they were very embarrassed and wrote down that they were very embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> nice.
0: That was really good. I feel like I know a lot more about her, and I can now correct men <laughs> on things publicly. So that's my good. favorite
1: pastime. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's always good.
1: I like her <laughs> a lot. Mm-hmm. I like her a lot too. I I feel like I also in the past could have been somebody who just went on a crusade and just murdered people who pissed me off.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean definitely me too. Unless I was like born into a position of like wealth in which case I would just like lie on a cushion all day
1: like eating grapes eating grapes or like you have to be a nun
0: yeah which I mean
1: I'd be good at that
0: too I think
1: yeah you just have a very chill life (laughs) I'm out here trying not to be executed for being a witch because I'm mean yeah and I'm like leave me out of
0: it I just I called a guy a name
1: (laughs) now i've got a hit out on me
0: (laughs) true yeah very accurate i like the thematic connection (laughs) i like that my guy was a soldier (laughs) and he just got his leg busted open and then walked around like a homeless man for the rest of his life and your lady was like i will kill the entire country i will murder everyone who looks at me funny Mm-hmm. both soldiers very she is kinds. what ignatius Wood just could be true mm-hmm. very true yeah he should have been reading about her
1: mm-hmm. absolutely <laughs> <laughs> his life would have turned out a lot differently i feel if
0: that had been his hero <laughs> if
1: that had been his role model yes <laughs> mm.
0: <laughs> yeah yikes why is it that when women do it i'm like yeah and when men do it i'm like men men, all men
1: should be castrated like (laughs) (laughs) really intense (laughs) because i don't root for the people who are already winning right and they've been winning forever I'm always going to root for the people who are underdogs. So, like, if women ruled the world and then a woman wanted to conquer something, I'd be like, ah, let somebody else do it for a change. Yeah, let the men try it. (laughs) Let let them (laughs) attempt it with their feeble
0: minds. (laughs) Yeah, you know, not very many men have a brain, so, like...
1: Yeah, and then whenever one does rise to power, you can say that he possesses more intelligence than the common man. Mm -hmm. So this is very rare. (laughs) Look, men are
0: men and sometimes they do things which is like so cute for them
1: it is it's just adorable <laughs> watching the weaker sex do stuff so.
0: <laughs> the gentler sex <laughs> <laughs> so funny good times I had a lot of fun
1: oh god sorry um you said that in a Plato leg <laughs> immediately popped into my <laughs> Plato leg. That's gonna be a while for before that thought leaves my brain. <laughs> intrusively,
0: old Plato leg.
1: <laughs> Ye old <Play-Doh. laughs>
0: What if that was the, like the inscription on one of his relics? <laughs> Ye old Plato leg. <laughs> That's disgusting. Oh no. I can't believe you would joke about that.
1: How dare I? <laughs> oh,
0: okay. Um, <laughs> this has been fun. It's been yeah, great. It's been good. I'm going to post pictures. Hopefully, I can find a picture of his leg, but don't
1: count on it. I can use my imagination if you can. <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay, maybe I'll make a
1: diorama. <laughs> Photoshop
0: picture <laughs> I spent like 30 hours on it and it looks so bad but I'm like awkwardly proud of it
1: <laughs> I would pay to see it though
0: um, thank you everybody for listening we hope you had a good time and learned some things that you can now argue
1: about in public that's all we try to do is give you fodder for arguments mm-hmm. um, and intrusive thoughts our two goals.
0: (laughs) Yes. Um, and we are right in that Venn diagram. Yeah. Right right in the middle.
1: In there, right between those two things. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, so you know how to get in touch with us. And, uh, if you have any requests, let us know. Um, that would be great. And we will see you next time. Thanks
1: be to God. Blessed be.